I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 15. <coughs> About 11 years after the writing of Romans from the city of Corinth, near the conclusion of his third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul sat alone in a dungeon writing a letter to his beloved son in the faith and his partner in the ministry, Timothy. He knew that his execution was at hand. Paul was not afraid of that event as he contemplated it. In fact, we have these words from his heart just uh, undoubtedly a few days or weeks before the executioner's sword beheaded him at least according to tradition. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come, says the apostle. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I particularly like that last phrase, I have finished the course, because the apostle Paul faced the end of his life contented that he had completed his course. That is what God had intended for him to accomplish in his life. <clears throat> he did not face his execution with regret that he might have done more, but he said, I have finished my course. If you and I want to die that way, then we must plan now to make it so. Whatever it is that you may want to accomplish in your life, you had better make plans now to achieve that, or you may come to a situation like Paul faced with a different attitude. Our text in Romans chapter 15 expresses to us why Paul was able to say 11 years after the writing of these verses what he did. He planned for his future. And God, by his grace, allowed his plans to be accomplished within his will. He says in Romans 15:22, For this reason I have often been hindered from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints." For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, 
I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. The Apostle Paul wanted to visit Rome to meet these people personally. And in the text, he shares his plans for the future with them. As we look at Paul's words, I am reminded that planning for our future is an important responsibility that each of us has. Now, I recognize that some object to such a statement and seem to say that God calls us to live by faith. And yet I would suggest to you that living by faith is not the same thing as living haphazardly. There is nothing particularly spiritual about poor preparation or the lack of planning. The Apostle Paul planned out his future. As he shares his heart with us, we can glean insights from him to help us to plan wisely in relation to the future that we have. The first insight is found in verse 22, where we are encouraged to realize that hindrances are a part of life. Now, we might wish it were otherwise, but that doesn't change the fact. We should keep in mind that hindrances are not necessarily bad for us. After all, hindrances can be stimulators of growth, can't they? The chick, as it is hatching, is hindered by that uncomfortable shell. And yet the process of getting out of that shell is important for that chick's growth in those early hours of its life. It needs that stimulation from the shell, and therefore it struggles with that hindrance until it is free. And the same can be said for you and for me. There are times when hindrances are stimulators for our maturing and our growing. We need them. Also, stimulators can be protectors sent by God. I suppose that a number of us today could relate personal experiences. When something hindered us, for example, in our schedule, so that we got away from home later than we anticipated for a trip, only to find that down the road there was an accident. And had we been on time as we had planned, we might well have been involved in a serious situation. Hindrances are not always bad. Sometimes they are God's protectors for us. In addition, hindrances can be indicators that we are living the way that we should. 
Sometimes hindrances come to us because of busy, productive lives, which often complicate our plans. And so sometimes hindrances are good in that they are indicators that we are living up to our potential. A person who has time to do anything he wants without any hindrances is a person who probably is not living up to his potential. So hindrances are a part of life, and that's not necessarily bad. It can be good. The sources of hindrances vary. Satan can hinder us. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul says exactly that, that he had wanted to go see the Thessalonians, and yet Satan had hindered him. He doesn't say how. In Daniel chapter 10, he prayed for a certain thing to occur. He might have understanding. But the answer to that prayer was delayed for three weeks by satanic hindrance. We must remember that we are, in fact, in a spiritual warfare. And there are times when Satan will directly intervene in our circumstances, in our plans, to hinder us. Hindrances can also come from physical obstacles that may have nothing to do with Satan. Illness, for example, is sometimes a hindrance. How well I am aware of that this morning. There are times when hindrances simply are the result of physical situations that we get into. We're not able to do what we would like to do, what we would plan to do. And then there are times when hindrances come, as in the case of Paul here, because of the demands of ministry. You see, what had hindered Paul at this point was not Satan, nor was it illness as much as we know, but rather what hindered Paul was his busy ministry. He has explained that his ministry has kept him occupied from Jerusalem 1,400 miles to the northwest to modern-day Yugoslavia. And he says, throughout that whole region, we have preached the gospel. And he had done it quite successfully. It doesn't mean he had been to every town. Paul's strategy was to go to the large cities, and then from there to send out teams, apparently, to the smaller villages. But he says, very clearly in verse 23, that Uh, He had no place any longer in that region where he was, and at the time he was writing this, he was in Corinth. The idea is that he had accomplished what he had intended to accomplish there. Not that everybody had been evangelized, every village reached, but his purpose, according to his philosophy of ministry, had been achieved. And therefore he was looking on to other things. What had hindered Paul here was the demand of his ministry. And so, as you and I plan, as we should, remember this, that we will be hindered at times. And those hindrances are a part of life. They are not necessarily bad. But not only a part of life, but we trust them also to be under the sovereign hand of God. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 16 for a moment as we see an example, I think, very clearly of what I'm saying. The Apostle Paul was on his second missionary journey. 
He had visited the churches that he had founded in the region of Asia Minor on his first missionary journey, and then took a turn to head back toward the east on the south side of the Caspian Sea. But in verse 6 it says, They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, working their way back toward the east. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. <clears throat> What's taken place here? No, we are not told. <coughs> Was it a group of people after Paul's life that caused him to change directions? Uh, was it some illness? Did the Lord appear to him in a vision and say, don't go this way? We're not told. All we know is that Paul had planned to go back to the north and to the east, into the innermost part of Asia, and God said to him in some way, no, and hindered him. And whatever that hindrance was, Paul said, this is of God. He believed that hindrances were under the sovereign hand of God, and he went down where he had liberty to go, to Troas, and from there God gave him specific direction to go over into Europe. And that's the direction that he went. So may I encourage you, as you realize that hindrances are a part of life, also realize that all of your hindrances are a part of God's sovereign plan for you. None of us gets to do everything that we want or plan to do. That's life. Therefore, will you please stop being frustrated in whatever circumstances are confronting you today? And will you rather relax by faith in the sovereignty of God in those hindrances that seem to be mountain-like obstacles before your plans on this Lord's day? Realize that hindrances are a part of life, but they are under God's sovereign hand and direction. <clears throat> Second insight that I see is in verses 23 to 28. As we plan for our futures, we need to keep the needs of others in perspective. In other words, we should not plan self-centeredly. Our text says this about Paul. He might have wished to go directly to Rome and to those regions beyond Rome, perhaps to Spain. But you see, there was something that hindered his plans at this point, that caused him to adjust his plans, or his desires, rather. Rather than planning as he might like to have gone, he adjusted his plans to keep the needs of the Jerusalem saints in mind. Those needs were so pressing upon Paul that they overruled what he himself might like to have done. Now, what were the needs in Jerusalem? <clears throat> well, there were two of them, at least, and they were interwoven. On the one hand, there was the problem of poverty among the saints. They were lacking food and clothing because, apparently, of continued persecution. The Apostle Paul wanted to care for that need of impoverishment. But an interwoven need with that was 
a certain factious spirit that was within the Jerusalem church. A spirit of dissension between Jew and Gentile. If you go back and look at the Jerusalem church, you will see that spirit lift its ugly head several times. For example, right after the conversion of Cornelius, there was a little problem, and God went to extraordinary lengths to prove to those Jewish Christians at that church in Jerusalem that Cornelius and Gentiles were full candidates for salvation without becoming Jews. Now they, they learned to accept that. For after all, I'm sure they reasoned, Cornelius had been a God-fearing Gentile. <clears throat> but then the Apostle Paul was commissioned by the church in Antioch to go on a missionary journey, and he went to basically Gentile areas. And there were vast numbers of Gentiles converted to Christianity. And when word of that got back to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, again they had a hard time. Now these were not God-fearing Gentiles, these were pagan Gentiles. And they were becoming Christians without first learning about the Jewish law. And so there was called a great council in Jerusalem after Paul's first journey, Acts chapter 15. One of the most, mo- most momentous occasions in church history. <clears throat> and that issue was wisely settled through the wisdom that God the Holy Spirit gave to James, who was the chief elder in the church in Jerusalem. And then Paul went on his second missionary journey. And apparently so critical was this this spirit in the Jerusalem church, that when he completed his second missionary journey, he returned to the Jerusalem church first before going back to his home church in Antioch and reported to them in Jerusalem what had taken place because he didn't want any kind of a misunderstanding to arise again with those Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Then Galatians chapter 2 records for us this tension that existed (coughs) between these Jewish believers and the Gentiles who were being saved. You see, there were some of them who wanted the Gentiles to keep the law, or at least certain legalistic regulations to make them acceptable to the Jews. And there were others who may have been concerned over the large influx of Gentiles into the church. For you see, the Gentiles very quickly outnumbered the Jews. And the Jews were not used to that. Therefore, there was a double need, you see, in the Jerusalem church. There was this problem of poverty, and there was this problem of this spirit of dissension, this factious spirit that kept eating away at that Jerusalem congregation. So God led Paul to do something that I think was very wise. And that was to take an offering. From that we know that Paul must have been a Baptist. For after all, isn't that what most Baptists do when they're in trouble? (laughs) The Apostle Paul took an offering. He collected it, as it says here in our text, in Macedonia and Achaia. By the way, if you Baptists are visiting, I'm a Baptist, so I'm not poking fun at you, but at us. But in Macedonia and Achaia... And also in Asia, we read in Acts, he began to take this offering. 
He wanted to present that offering to the Jerusalem church. Now here in the text, in verse 26, he calls it a contribution. The word literally is fellowship, and the idea is he was collecting a love gift. He wanted it to be something that was spontaneous from the Gentile believers for these Jews down in Jerusalem who were believers. It was a love gift, and he says it pleased them to give. That's another reason we must have known these were Baptist churches. It pleased them to give. That's a good characteristic of Baptists, maybe. Then in verse 27, he calls it a debt. Not a love gift now. He says it's a debt. For he says the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual wealth, in their Christ. Therefore, it's only right that the Gentiles now help the Jewish believers in their material poverty. So he says there is a certain indebtedness on the part of the Gentiles to give. <clears throat> By the way, the Jerusalem leaders may well have agreed with this. You see, they were used to a temple tax being gathered among the Jews throughout the world, a half a shekel a, a year to be sent for the maintenance of the temple in Jerusalem. And so they may have felt it was very appropriate from their background that the Gentiles send in an offering to help the, the mother church, so to speak, in Jerusalem. But then the apostle calls it in verse 28, fruit. This offering, he says, was a fruit of the Spirit of God working in their lives. It was the result of the gospel being preached and God working in them. And they were liberal as a result of that in their giving. They were generous. They wanted to give. It was not something that they had to work up. They didn't have to give away things in order to get money. They didn't put on an appeal through the Asia Minor television network. But what they did was they gave. Because the Spirit of God was spontaneously working in them. So it was fruit. That's what the offering was like. A love gift, a debt, a fruit. Now Paul's hope was that in taking this offering, he would go down to the Jerusalem church, meet the need of poverty, and secondly, show to those Jewish believers how much the Gentiles loved them and hopefully breach, again, this factious spirit. <clears throat> Now, the point in all of this is that Paul kept the needs of others in perspective as he planned. <clears throat> and there will be times when your future plans will need to be tempered because of the needs of others. This is what the Apostle Paul meant in part, I think, when he said earlier in this very chapter that we are to please one another and not ourselves. That means when a pastor who has an opportunity come to him for a bigger church must first look at the situation and keep the needs of his present church in mind. That's why an executive who has an opportunity for promotion must first see how that promotion will affect his family, for example. That's why a student who's making summer plans needs to keep in mind his parents and their needs. That's why a husband who's going on a fishing trip, <clears throat> gentlemen, needs to keep in mind his wife and her needs 
over that long weekend. You see, in our planning, we need to keep the needs of others in perspective so that we don't become totally self-centered. Now, that insight will help you. It may even bring some peace to your home. A third insight regarding our planning for the future is that we need to make our desire, our number one desire, the fullness of Christ's blessing. That needs to be our priority. That we might know the fullness of his blessing in our lives. All else is secondary at best. And the place of blessing, dear friend, is the place of obedience. You can write this down in the back of your mind. It's a little principle that is true. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. When you and I live in the place of obedience, then we will be in the place of the fullness of blessing. And that's why the Apostle Paul was able to say, as he did in verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He wasn't fearful of that, but because he was a man who practiced obedience, he knew that he would have that fullness of blessing. Dear friend, never allow your plans to rob you of this, the fullness of God's blessing. Always make your plans consistent with what it means to obey God in your life. Never make your plans your own direction, irregardless of what God wants, what God commands, and thus miss that blessing of God in your life. Griffith Thomas said it was only as he lived in the fullness of blessing that blessing could accrue to others through him. Our work will never rise higher than our character, and our character will never be stronger than the measure of our communion with Christ. <clears throat> Is that your number one priority in life, to know the fullness of Christ's blessing? Is it? Or is it to, to get the big job, to make the big bucks, to become famous, to retire early as a wealthy person, <clears throat> to have all of those things that your neighbor has and you lust for? Whatever other plans you make in life, Please, I beg of you, make your priority, your number one desire, the fullness of the blessing of God. And you may have that if you simply obey. <clears throat> there is a fourth insight we find in verses 30 through 32. We need to recognize the role of others in our lives. You see, whoever you are, whoever I am, we share a partnership with others who love us. Friends, family, a local church. And these people play a vital role 
in helping us to realize our plans. God does not intend for us to be macho Christians. God has not called us to be super saints who are independent and autonomous of other believers. We are a part of a body of people as believers, and we are part of a family. Others desire to share with us our plans and to help us. You see, we share the same Lord Jesus Christ, just as Paul and the Romans did, verse 30. We share together the same Holy Spirit, just as Paul and the Romans did. The Holy Spirit who sheds as a flood in our hearts the love of God for one another. And because we belong to each other and we serve the same Lord and have the same indwelling Spirit, we want to help each other. Why is it then that we so often go off on our own tangents and forget about others and don't incorporate them and ask for their prayers and their help. The Apostle Paul points out two important roles that others have in our lives. One of them I've already suggested, and that is prayer. Paul asks him to pray for three things, that he might be delivered from danger. After all, there were those, literally, who wanted to kill Paul, to assassinate him. He asked him to pray that he might, uh, in bringing the gift to the saints in Jerusalem, be accepted. I think perhaps that was the greater concern that he had. I think that Paul was a little concerned that those Jerusalem Jewish believers might scorn this gift from Paul and those Gentiles. So he says, you pray that they will accept this gift. By the way, sometimes it's harder to accept a gift than it is to give a gift, isn't it? And yet both graces are important. And thirdly, he prays that he might, and he wants them to pray with him, that he might have a safe and joyful trip to Rome eventually. So he says, pray with me. And that prayer is a striving, he calls it. The word there is the word agony. It pictures an athletic contest, for example, wrestling. I like to watch real wrestling. I turned on some kind of wrestling yesterday. I forget the name of it on one of the channels in the afternoon, and I tell you, Hollywood couldn't do a better job of acting than those two guys. A real joke. But if you ever meet a real wrestler, you'll know it the minute you shake his hand. You'll know if he's real. Wrestlers are strong, and why? Because it's agony to wrestle. It's hard work. It's muscle against muscle. And therefore, one who wrestles is one who is in agony. He's building up strength. He is striving through that process. Now, the apostle says, likewise, we are to wrestle in prayer. You know something? We don't know very much about that. We really don't. Some of us say prayers, but we don't know what it is to wrestle in prayer, to strive with it. I believe that God wants us to be earnest about our praying. He wants us to get an urgency about our praying. 
It concerns me that we as a church don't have a great deal of urgency in our praying, at least the praying that, that I hear. <clears throat> Maybe there's some that I don't hear in our small churches or other places. Folks, <clears throat> God wants our praying to be like a wrestling match. That's where the work gets done. And it's not fun. It's not fun. Do you wrestle in prayer for our missionaries? Do you read their prayer letters and they say, remember this, remember that, and don't forget this conference and this project we're working on? It goes in your eye gate and right out of your mind. Do you ever take that letter to your closet and pray and wrestle with that missionary in his plans? We need to learn something about this matter of sharing with one another in prayer. Recognize the role of others in your life. They want to pray for you. But you have to be open enough to let them know your needs, your plans. But secondly, he mentions the role of refreshment. The apostle says, So that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. <laughs> it's almost as though Paul looks over at the Roman church not too far away as he writes this letter. <clears throat> and he sees over there in that Roman church a harbor. And it's serene and calm and there are no big waves. And he sees himself at this point in the middle of a storm. And he's longing to get over there and to drop anchor in that harbor in Rome and be with those believers and be refreshed and have some rest. You know something? We need to refresh one another. <clears throat> Will you take your concordance sometime, maybe today, and look up the word refresh or refreshment and see what text that will lead you to in the New Testament? Are you a refreshing kind of Christian? When others bump up against you, do they find you a calm harbor or a stormy tempest? <clears throat> Now let's face it, there are times when all of us are stormy tempests. But the norm ought to be that we are at peace so that other believers coming into our harbor for a little visit can find some refreshing rest there. When the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy that last letter, I think out of a, a broken, maybe disappointed heart, he said, Everyone's forsaken me. No one wants to come to me here in this prison, this dungeon. But he said, how I thank God for Onesiphorus. He says, he has come to me and he has refreshed me. And you can see the broken heart of that, the apostle alone there in that dungeon just looking forward to those little visits that he could have with Onesiphorus. I want to tell you something. Around you today are some people with broken hearts. Around you right now, there are some people who are in stormy tempests, though placid they look on the outside. Will you be a refreshing rest for somebody today? Will you? Will you recognize the role that others want to have in your life? There are some people who want to minister to you today. Will you let them? 
Will you get close enough that somebody else can love you and care for you and refresh you and pray for you? Let me close by pointing out a fifth insight, and that is that as we plan for the future, we must submit our plans to the will of God. The apostle says that I may come to you by the will of God. We are responsible for making plans. But folks, we must predicate our plans upon what God wills. In James 4, we are rebuked for making plans without God's will in view. He says, now listen you people who say, today or tomorrow I'm going to go into this city or in such and such a place and buy and sell and get gains. He says, now listen. He says, that kind of boasting is evil. You don't know what your life will entail tomorrow. You're a vapor that's here for a while and it vanishes. It's gone. What you ought to say is if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. As the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, he had never been to Rome. He was going to be shortly, though. You say, well, sure, he made plans to get there. Yes, yes, he did. But I'll tell you something. He didn't get there the way he had planned. Notice he says that I may come to you by the will of God. God's will was not for Paul to go to Jerusalem, have a happy time there, go back to Antioch and say hello to the friends, and then sail to Rome. As soon as he got back to Jerusalem, within a few weeks of writing this letter, the Apostle Paul was arrested. And then he was kept in prison in Caesarea for two years, awaiting a trial that never came, finally appealed to Caesar, and was taken in chains to Rome. That's how he got to Rome. Not like he had planned. He submitted his plans to the will of God. But notice those little words there, that I may come to you in joy by the will of God. If you go back to, Rome, to Acts chapter 28, you will find that when the Apostle Paul finally got to Rome, he did not get there in tears. He got there in chains, but not tears. He was thrilled to be at Rome. And as soon as he hit the ground in Rome, there were Christians, or in Italy, there were Christians from Rome who came to greet him and to escort him all the way back into the city of Rome. The Apostle Paul went there with joy, though he went there in chains, because he knew that was the will of God. And through those chains, he had opportunities to witness for Christ he could never have had otherwise. In fact, we read in the New Testament that even some in the household of Caesar himself, there were some who had become saved because of Paul's chains, his imprisonment. You know, there are some of us who say, well, I'll make my plans, and if God's will fits in, fine. If it doesn't, then God's out of luck. Oh, no, my friend, we're the losers when we have that attitude. There are some of us who are afraid to let God have his way because we're afraid he'll mess up our plans. Well, if our plans are messed up by God's will, then they need to be messed up, don't they? Are you willing to say in advance, Lord, here are my plans, but whatever you want, I want. The result of planning and living by these insights that we've looked at this morning is the blessing of God in our lives, the God of peace, as he is called in verse 33. Is your life at peace this morning? 
Are you at peace with God? Are you saved? Or are you at war with God? Is there still hostility in your life? You say, well, I'm not really mad at God, but I'm not sure I have peace with God either. Listen, because we are sinners, we are at war with God. That God wants to proclaim peace between you and him, but he can only do that if you will trust his son, Jesus Christ, and receive him into your life, recognizing that he died for your sin on the cross and rose again to save you. Will you do that? You say, well, yes, I've done that. Wonderful. Then do you know the peace of God? <clears throat> Is God's peace ruling your life, Christian? Or are you today in the middle of a battle for the control of your life. Listen, if that's the case, you better let God have his way today before you get messed up any further. We are to plan for the future. We are unwise if we don't. But as we plan, let's plan according to these insights. What action do you need to take today so that your future will be in the will of God? so that you will be in the place of obedience and thus the place of blessing. Heavenly Father, first I want to give you thanks for strength to be able to make it through this message, for giving these dear people the patience to listen to a raspy voice. And I pray that in spite of the physical limitations and hindrances that, that I faced here this morning, that you will cause this message to be very applicable to our lives and to hit home. And Father, if there are some decisions and commitments that need to be made this morning, may we have the grace to make those, that we might be in the place of obedience and blessing. And Lord, if that means taking our hands off our own plans and, and off our own lives, then may that be the result of our decision. You are so big. You're bigger than we are. You're wiser than we are. How foolish of us to think that we should be gods of our own lives. Lord, you have been raised from the dead. You are Lord. Now I pray, enforce your lordship in each of us. Right where we are today, in those family relationships, in the dorm, in the office, and in our planning for the future. In Jesus' name, amen.